Hello and welcome to the Emmy Show. I'm Gary Burgess, together with support from the Emmy Association. I hope this series will help shine a light on the work that's happening to fully understand Emmy and eventually find that treatment we all want. This time I speak to Dr. Nigel Spate, a paediatrician whose interest in Emmy has only grown since a patient came through his doors in the 1980s. Today, he spends much of his time fighting the corner of families accused of neglecting their own children, when in fact, those children have Emmy, a heartbreaking and scandalous state of affairs. As you'll hear, Nigel is somewhat gloomy about where things are at with Emmy at the moment. It's an interview where the connection is a bit patchy in places, but I think you'll agree what Dr. Nigel Spates has to say is well worth a listen. Dr. Nigel Spates, welcome to the ME Show. Thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Pleasure. For those people who don't know about you and, and your background and, and your connection with Emmy, your, your medical career started with, uh, with, with paediatrics. Do you want to just sort of take us back to that time and, and, and how you became aware of Emmy? Yes, well, like the doctors, I was never taught anything about Emmy at medical school or in early postgraduate year. I was actually an adult physician for eight years before I changed to paediatrics. Then I trained in paediatrics in Newcastle, and I became a consultant in Durham in 1982. And I'd still never been taught or heard anything about ME. And then, um, three or four years of my consultant career, I met a girl in a wheelchair who informed me she had ME. I learned from some great paediatric men, like the late Alan Franklin, um, uh, the late David Lewis from Aberystwyth and uh, the American doctor David Bell. And I gradually began to recognize the pattern. The word got around that I believed in it, and therefore I was asked for second opinions in the region. And um, I think there must have been a cluster in North Durham in the 80s. Um, and then the rest of my career, because I got associated with various ME charities and increasingly being asked to uh, give second opinions around the country on severe cases and controversial cases. Um, we'll come on to talk about some of that in just a few minutes' time. I, I just wonder, in those early stages, as somebody who who is is qualified and, and practicing in medicine, to then have a patient arrive on your doorstep and, and you realise you have so little understanding at that point, what is that like for somebody in your position? Uh, it's surprisingly common, actually. <laughs> medicine is an enormous field. And one does still things you've never seen before or even heard of. But ME is a really uh, poorly taught condition. It's a sort of unofficial orphan condition. But in general, doctors would be ready to admit their ignorance and willingness to learn throughout their careers. And... Where do you think we're at now? You know, everyone I speak to tells me tremendous progress has been made in terms of the amount of research, the levels of reporting, of awareness, of understanding at, at political level, at general public level. Yet, yet we still haven't had the breakthrough, whatever the breakthrough might be. I 
I'm rather pessimistic at the moment, I'm afraid. Um, that's partly because of the kind of cases that I see. Uh, so I'm looking at the, um, the whole picture through one end of the binoculars, and I tend to see where things are going wrong. And in general, I thought, um, you know, the, the political battle for recognition was won 20 years ago with the medical officer's report, which I, I was a member of. But um, the psychiatric lobby keep coming back in different, in different guises. And it's like a game of snakes and ladders. You think you've won one week, and the next week they, they come back with another approach. And basically, asked, um, I mean, I, mean I, I just saw a poll recently that people in general medicine, registrars training to be physicians, 80% believe it is a psychosomatic disease. So there is still a massive job to be done. If, if you know, I, I keep holding on to this hope of a whole new generation coming through who get it. You're saying actually the evidence is not there for that. Not in the medical profession. Um, the, it's still not taught as an undergraduate subject. It's not taught properly as a postgraduate subject. Um, the major medical textbooks, the adult uh, medical textbooks are by psychiatrists. And they've they seem to have just cornered the market in uh, terms of getting money for services and also research and also education. And given we're now into the second year of this, hopefully only, I, I say in quote marks, only three year process of the, the nice guidelines review. Do you have a fear the the, the, the psychological lobby will unduly affect that review? Again, it's snakes and ladders. When we heard it was going to be reviewed, um, we were very pleased and optimistic. We were told it was specially reviewed because of the doubt on the research behind aided exercise and cognitive behavioural therapy. And uh, then when we woke up, a majority of the NICE Guidelines Committee seemed to be proponents of that lobby. Take me back to what you were saying earlier in this conversation about the fact that, you know, you had that patient come through your door and then word spread over time of your interest and understanding within the region and people were turning to you. Over the years, you've, you've been fighting the corner for some very severely ill patients and, and for children who effectively were at risk of or were actually being abused by a disbelieving system. Yes, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm planning to write a book on it at the moment because it's a, it's a black period of British medical history. The, the two different issues, really, is the neglect of the severely affected by the medical profession. Um, for my, despite being a pediatrician, I'm the medical advisor for the 25% group, which is a small charity devoted to the 25% most severely affected. And I'm often giving advice to people confined to bed at home, haven't seen a doctor for five years, because the GP refuses to do home visits. They, they just don't exist. People don't accept the reality then the other issue of what happens to children is even more distressing over the years i've been involved in some tragic cases where quotes innocently are accused of faking their children's illness and it's usually simply because the local pediatrician hasn't either 
knowledge or the confidence to diagnose and diagnose ME. And it's vital to have an official diagnosis to protect a child from a kind of inexorable drift towards child protection proceedings. And if, you, if a child is not protected and is missing school, then the education further to social services, social services come in with their child abuse hat on and start irritating the parents, the parents protest. And um, I've, I've got, in the last um, 15 years, I've had 50 clear cases where families like this, um, often single, single mothers, and when we're talking about things getting better or getting worse, I'm afraid on this front they get worse. Because again, there's a growing school of thought in British paediatrics which is um, <laughs> which is postulating that ME cases aren't really ME but are fabricated induced illness. What's going on here? Is is this one or two very vocal or influential people spreading their bad medicine amongst the the paediatric world? Is is this ignorance amongst local authorities and education professionals rather than health professionals? Why why is this still happening? Or indeed getting worse based on what you're saying? Yeah, it's a bit of both. The the the, the failure to diagnose mixture of ignorance and lack of, lack of understanding about ME and disbelief and the, the uh, promotion of the kind of empire building behind fabricated and induced illness is because uh, there's some influential leaders of that school of thought. And these, I mean, the, the, the sadness on top of all of this is that the very people who would want to protest this situation they find themselves in, are the very people who just are not physically able to fight their own corner. Absolutely right. I mean, well, in, in many of the unfortunate families I've seen, one or the parent also has ME, and is, they're already at their limits without the additional strain of this. I mean, I mean what, what really saddens me is that so many paediatricians and social workers can't recognise a, a normal family with an ill child, and they have to construct this explanation. And is this pressure on their part? We, we, we hear of so many overworked, understaffed, target-driven social services offices. Uh, are they just desperate to almost sort of reach the punchline of their story and, and then move on? And this makes it straightforward for them. Bad parents, abusing child, job done, move on. It's almost the other way around. Here you are putting all this time and effort and resources into case conferences and courts and visits and even going to court, very expensive, and you're wasting these resources on an innocent family and you can't recognize it. They somehow get a kick out having a soft target. So sometimes I think it's a kind of soft option. Will there, I mean, you, you've been fairly gloomy. Uh, will there, do you think, in a reasonable amount of time, be a period when we will look back on this and it will be universally acknowledged as the scandal that it is, or, or do you fear this continuing for quite a while? Uh, I wish I'd been waiting for that day for twenty years. I thought it was after, you know, after the CMO's report. 
But um, the enormous investment that psychiatry has put in this subject, they've never shown any sign of going away easily or admitting they were wrong. Um, and the medical profession certainly hasn't got its house in order for this condition as yet. Politicians are, uh, the MPs are often very supportive, very helpful, and help to uh, rescue the family who are under this sort of pressure. But um, me medically, it's still still really a, a black period of medical history. What's your best advice? Uh, well, let's let's do a number of these. First of all, to to GPs, I guess you know pri primary healthcare there on the front line. W what is your best advice to a, to a GP who is no expert in this, but has a patient present with something that might be ME? What what do you tell that person? Um, well, what I do say is that actually things are remarkably simple. You could teach uh, a GP or a 10-year-old Boy Scout to take, to make a diagnosis of ME in a, you know, a 10-minute lesson, just explaining to them the symptoms that they have to learn to ask the right questions. But diagnosis, it would be quite easy. The next thing you have to go on to is to say, accept the reality of the condition, validate the patient, tell them you believe them, and then offer to help and try to get over your guilt about not having a cure. And once you do that, the patients will love you. They can give you for not having a cure, but there's an enormous amount you can do to support and protect them and sympathize with them and make special allowances and visit them at home when they're too ill to come to you. Some families get tremendous support from individual broad-shouldered GPs who accept them and support them in this way. The power of that is incredible. I, I know from my own experience, the the need to be believed was so yeah. important to me, even though I knew there was no magic wand to be waved. But actually, validation is yes. is a huge part of that process. Um, I, I, that that was based on a question about what GPs can do. Uh, what about somebody with what they think may be ME, and they go to their GP? Of course, they don't know in advance whether their GP is an expert on this or not. What, what, what's the, your best advice to that person at that stage? I think it depends on their previous relationship with that GP. The trouble is there's so little continuity in practice these days. But if you've got a friendly family GP who's known you from childhood, um, then you can just go and say, I think I've got ME. Got ME. What do you think? Let's look forward to wrap up this conversation um, you, you you said earlier you're you're not hugely optimistic for where things are going, but if there is if there is one thing that could and should change that would make a difference at whatever level, whether that's at medical or political or patient level, if there's one thing that could happen, what would that be that you think would make a difference? If one had a kind of very godmother wish, it would be that we find a cure quickly. And once we find a cure, is a medical cure, then the psychiatrist would just wither away and say, well, this is what we, we always said, it was physical illness anyway, we were trying to help. You've no idea how quickly the, the whole controversy would disappear. And it, it was like with AIDS. When it, there wasn't a cure for AIDS, it was a stigmatized condition. People didn't want to think about it, think twice before they'd even test for it. 
And then now we've got cure. People are open about it. Doctors say, would you like a test for AIDS? Okay, fine, we'll do that. I just hope that day comes soon. Uh, Dr. Nigel Spate, thank you so much for joining us on the ME show today. It's been truly fascinating. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Dr. Nigel Spate, and you'll find links to his work in the show notes that accompany this podcast. If you're listening in iTunes, please subscribe, rate and review the show there. It all helps boost our visibility when people search for The ME Show. And wherever and however you're listening, until next time, thank you for listening.